Good morning, church. This morning we're going to address a number of questions around gender and sex and sexuality. And uh, I know that we're really going to be walking kind of the razor's edge on this one, trying to find that narrow, narrow pathway between law and grace. So let me be really upfront about a few things before we dive in too deeply. I am a pastor. I am not a scholar. I am not an ethicist, even though I love the study of God's Word. I'm also not a therapist, and I'm not a researcher, though I've I've probably done more reading on this topic over the years than most other ones. And uh, I don't really claim to speak on behalf of the various communities that are involved in this discussion. They are perfectly capable of speaking for themselves. But because I am a pastor, my primary goal in addressing these issues is to find a redemptive pastoral response. And if I'm going to make a mistake, if I'm going to err, I prefer to err on the side of grace. That's, I mean, that's just who I am as a pastor. So what I hope to do this morning with you is to find a way through a series of contentious and divisive and really pain-filled questions. We're going to try and find a way that is faithful to Scripture and a way that is compassionate in addressing a community of people who I think you will agree have been deeply wounded and marginalized and alienated by the church. You know, when I talk to young adults, one of the things that I hear again and again is that they have a hard time hearing, receiving, and accepting the traditional position from the church on these issues. And often it's because they have heard it taught in an arrogant or in a defensive or in an aggressive manner. Rarely have they heard it expressed in a way that, that is redemptive. And I got to thinking about that, and, and I thought, you know, if I can't express my position in a way that comes across as being good news for all human beings, then maybe I need to reevaluate both what I believe and how I articulate it, because I believe that God's way is meant to be good, and it's meant to be good for all people. So I think that this is a great opportunity for us to be able to think through how it is that we communicate with each other around the tough issues. How are we gentle and yet committed firmly to truth? How do we live out that principle that you have in your notes? And by the way, if you're joining us online, I hope you will have copies of the notes with you. We've made them available to to those who are in the building today because uh, we're working through a lot of material and we'll be working through quickly. And I know a lot of you like to take handwritten notes. This will save you a little bit of that effort. But you see that scripture there from 1 Peter 3.15? This is a principle for how we handle these kind of discussions. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. You've heard that verse before. But this part is important too. Do it with gentleness and respect. And this is an opportunity for us to reassess and reevaluate what faithful practice looks like in the life of the church. And I think you'll agree that one of the things that that sadly has been abandoned in our society is the ability to have good civil discourse, to have conversations, especially in the public sphere. That seems to have happened very quickly. It's eroded 
over the course of less than 50 years. It used to be that we had some understanding of how to build up a reasonable argument from first principles. And you put it out there, and then a person said, I disagree, and here's why. And then they would say how this principle doesn't follow, and that doesn't accept. But now it seems like all we can really do is sling mud and accuse those who we disagree with of being pagan or evil or on our behalf of being bigoted and hateful. So I think it's important that we do this well, because this is, let's be honest, this is an emotional issue. It's emotional for all of us. I expect there's nobody in the room who doesn't have somebody within their circle of friends and family who isn't personally invested in this issue. And statistics would suggest that in any room of more than 20 people, that at least one of those people is struggling with many of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. So I think if we could learn to be, to be gentle and respectful, if we could take that disposition, we, we would do well. And it certainly would be, I think, more effective than many of those really caustic Facebook posts that are posted out there. I'm not sure, to be honest, that that's helpful at all. So let me start, if you have your notes in front of you, by outlining two views. Broadly speaking, the church in our generation is wrestling with two positions. Both are held by committed followers of Jesus. Both are wrestling seriously with God's word. So let's not pretend that one side or the other gets to camp out on being the real lovers of Jesus or the real faithful students of Scripture. Both are doing that. Here's the first. The position sometimes is labeled welcoming, but not affirming. Now, what do we mean by that? That the church should be a place of welcome. It should be a place of welcome for all people. It recognizes that we all come with sin and with brokenness in our lives. However, it also acknowledges that God's plan, or if you'd like God's design for human life, is that sex be expressed within the context of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. It would go on further to say that homosexuality was not God's original creative intent for humanity. You may have heard that called the traditional position or the orthodox position. That's the welcoming but not affirming position. And it's widely held uh, among Christians around the world. Um, Catholicism and orthodoxy are two streams where the official church policy is to hold to that position. Within Protestantism, there are two major streams. There's mainline Protestantism, and we have watched mainline Protestant churches tear themselves right down the middle. Anglicanism and the United Church and the Lutheran Church trying to wrestle with this. And then there is evangelical Protestantism. And I'd expect there is not a denomination within the Protestant evangelical world that is not gathering at some point in its annual meetings with this issue in front of it. Welcoming but not affirming. Here is the other position. Welcoming and affirming. We would agree, yes, the church should be a place of welcome for all people, including those of same-sex orientation. So that's a place of agreement. But it would go on to say that it should affirm affirm, uh, accept, validate as, as true and blessed in God's eyes those who are involved in committed, monogamous, same-sex relationships. That is, covenantal relationships. 
between members of the same sex, that those things are a reflection of God's love expressed through human beings. That sexual orientation, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, is something given by God. And that when the Bible speaks out against homosexuality, it's not envisioning those kind of stable, committed, long-term relationships. It's referring instead to acts of abuse or violence or prostitution or promiscuity. You feel the difference between the two? Welcoming, but not affirming. Welcoming and affirming. I mean, of course, there's a third position, neither welcoming nor affirming. And there are horrifying examples of churches that have really weaponized God's word and used it just to clobber people. They spew hate and condemnation. They even encourage violence. And I honestly, I just don't want to waste a lot of time talking about that position except to say that it is a vicious corruption and contortion of what the body of Christ is meant to be. And it severely, almost blasphemously, blasphemously misrepresents Jesus. And it just... It belongs right there on the ash heap of history. As I said all the way along, I, I hope to do my best to, to present both points of view, uh, but I want to be upfront about my own bias so that you know where is it that I land. I take that position that the church would traditionally call orthodox or welcoming but not affirming. And so I will speak to that. But, but let me say I have, I have a tremendous amount of compassion for and interest in those who are arguing the other position. In many ways, it would be a lot more comfortable to land there. Certainly, it would be a lot easier to navigate society, would it not? Uh, but my wrestling with Scripture, at least to this point in my life, has not allowed me to do that. But here's what I'm sure of. I'm sure of what my attitude should be towards the LGBTQ community. Because even if people would conclude that that practice is not consistent with God's design, we have clear instruction about how we are to deal with those that we recognize are recipients of the love of God, and that includes all human beings. It takes no grace, does it? It takes no grace to show love to people who are just like us, but it takes a huge amount of grace in order to love people that we disapprove of or disagree with. So at some level, the answer to the question, is the church homophobic or am I homophobic, is probably yes. I mean, let's be honest. It's yes. If you see a transgendered woman walking down the street and your first response is, that's not right, that's a man wearing women's clothing, that there is something there, a fear of strangeness. If you see um, on a television screen a scene where two men or two women are exchanged in an intimate embrace or a kiss, and something in you goes, ew, that's, that's a kind of fear. Okay, So I think we need to be honest. We need to start by acknowledging our fear response. We also need to go further and say that fear response alone is not enough to support a viewpoint that would marginalize people. That the response that we make is not based on that. But let's be honest about the starting point for many people. So people, people ask, how can I possibly stay friends with people who, who hold to that lifestyle? And I'd want to respond, how can they possibly stay friends with you? Uh, you'll see that quote in your notes. This is uh, 
famously been said a number of times in recent years, but Christians tend to get very angry at those who sin differently than they do. And after all, realize this, and I know this is contentious, but Jesus said as much to say about greed and hypocrisy and pride and lust, all of which are sins that I struggle with. And he never actually mentioned homosexuality, at least not directly that we know of. In fact, it seems as you read the Gospels, that Jesus is always far more interested in a person's spiritual orientation than he is in their sexual orientation. I'm not suggesting we ignore the issue, but let's rank it where it belongs. Even if I conclude that all homosexual behavior is wrong, as many conservative Christians do, I'm still compelled, am I not, to respond with love. With grace and truth, yes, But sometimes, in the interest of truth, we leave off the grace part. Do I believe gay Christians can be committed followers of Jesus? Absolutely. I've known far too many of them to doubt them. I also believe, by the way, that alcoholics and prideful people and hypocrites can be committed Christians. And Jesus speaks out about those things. In short, I believe that sinners can, and I really have tried to step back from ranking people's sins. And if I'm honest, it bothers me that somehow we have marked this one as number one, and we have used it as the cultural dividing line. This is the line over which we cannot cross. And we've made it the dividing line for orthodoxy in our church. Those who've stepped over the line have gone into a heretical position and have abandoned their faith and their faithfulness in Jesus. Those who have stayed on this side of the line, well, they're okay. Again, I'm not suggesting that we be soft on the position, but I am suggesting that we be careful about how we have hypersexualized the church in response to the issue. So let me map out the morning and how we're going to spend our time. Again, it's going to take a little bit of time to get through this. So I I hope you feel comfortable, those of you who are in the room and those of you who are joining us on YouTube, to get up and move around and stand and stretch as you need to. That's okay. Let me map out our time. The first thing I want to do is offer a, a few definitions, just to make sure that we're all speaking the same language. And then we're going to very quickly run through the six passages in Scripture that speak directly to the issue of homosexuality. There's just six of them. And then finally, I want to do something different. I want to try and and carve out a position based on Scripture that I hope can be experienced redemptively by people, even by people who, who would consider themselves sexual minorities within our culture and think about how we respond. Let's start with the definitions. And again, uh, I'll invite you to turn with me into into the notes if you have them there. We're on page two now. I don't want to assume that we're using the same terms in the same way. So I apologize for some of you. This is going to feel a little bit elementary, but, but I think it's important. Christian missiology says that if we want to engage culture with the gospel and do it well, we need to understand their language and we need to speak using a language that they can understand. So these four terms, these four terms are important because they help us understand the many layers of the discussion. Here's the first one, sexual orientation. 
Sexual orientation refers to, if you'd like, the strength or persistence of a person's romantic and sexual attraction to someone else or something else in very rare cases. But the strength and persistence of somebody's romantic or sexual attraction to someone else. Orientation is something that goes on within a person. Most people, if you ask them who have an orientation, don't really know how they got it. That's true of all of us. Those of us who are heterosexual, attracted to people of the opposite sex, don't really know how we got to be that way. It's just the way that we are. And it's far too simplistic to say that it's a choice that we made. That would be the same for people who experience same-sex attraction. Hey, they'd say, I, I didn't choose this. So orientation, it's, it's not just a choice. And more importantly, in the vast majority of people, it does not change. It does not change. There was a time when homosexuality was classified as a mental disorder, and there were lots of organizations, many of them Christians, many of them well-meaning, that worked hard to try and change the orientation of gay and lesbian people. It didn't work. And now conversion therapy, as it's been called, has been largely abandoned. In many places, it's even illegal. The largest Christian reorientation or ex-gay movement in the world, an organization called Exodus International, closed up its doors a few years ago. And they issued an apology saying that 99.9% of the people they tried to help experienced no change whatsoever in sexual orientation. So orientation, it's not just a matter of choice, and by and large, it does not change. People will ask the question, the hard question, what is it that creates it? Is it, is it science, or is it, is it nature? Is it just the way they were born? Is it nurture? Is it the way that they were raised? And, and actually, the science is really kind of unclear on this. We don't actually know. Because we don't actually know, people might say, well, God made, the, me, made me this way, and if God made me this way, then it's okay for me to act out of these desires. And I'd want to say, well, actually, you know, our theology handles this really well, doesn't it? In the sense that the creation, the created world, including human beings, are beautiful, but we're also broken. And David says that. He says that even within our mother's womb, we are broken. So it's understandable that we might see one who has a broke, see someone who has a kind of a broken element in their nature. Something that doesn't maybe line up with God's created design. By the way, just to break the tension on that one, because I, I know that's a point of considerable tension. All of us are disoriented in some way. Are we not? And all of our sexualities are disoriented in some way. My heterosexual sexuality is disoriented in some way, and so is yours. There's just a level of brokenness in all of us. I have a highly addictive personality, don't I, Karina? Uh, I just know that this is something that is within me, and I have prayed that God would take it from me. But what I'm finding is that instead of taking it away, 
that God is giving me grace that enables me to fight the battle and not be overwhelmed by the temptation. That's the first category, sexual orientation. Again, too simplistic to say it's chosen, but too simplistic to say we're born that way. There's a complexity between those two extremes that just goes along with the journey of life. Second definition is sexual behavior. This is the activity we choose to engage in. Behavior is exclusively chosen. We choose what we do. This is really important because a lot of people want to suggest that an orientation equals an identity. And then especially within the lives of an adolescent, if they have a same-sex experience, our culture wants to push them and say, that's the reflection of an orientation and therefore an identity. And maybe what we want to say is, it was just a behavior. It was just an action. And no one action should define who you are. The journey of adolescence is confusing at the best of times. And I think one of the gifts that we can give our kids is just to expand the categories they can use to interpret their experience. Don't lock them in. That's sexual behavior. Sexual identity is the third definition. This is the act of labeling oneself based on their attractions or their, or, or their orientation. So, because I am attracted to someone of the same sex, therefore, I am gay. Sexual identity can mean very different things to different people. In fact, within the LGBTQ community, the romantic sexual lives of people vary just as widely as within the heterosexual community. Some are celibate, some are not. Some are seeking relationships, some are not. Some believe that same-sex relationships might be okay with God. Some do not. Some are involved in these stable, long-term covenant partnerships. Some are not. Some are parents, and some are not. You can't really speak of a homosexual lifestyle any more than you can, you can speak of a heterosexual lifestyle as if it were one thing. All I'm getting at is that in order to understand and have redemptive conversations with people, it's going to be important that we take the time to listen and to understand really what it is they're saying about themselves. Orientation, activity, um, identity, all of these things. Uh, By the way, if, if you're looking to do a little bit further reading in this area. I know that this is going to come really fast. There is a, a marvelous couple of books out there. They're written by Mark Yarhouse. This one is called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. There's another book called Understanding Sexual Identity. Uh, I don't agree with everything that he says, but I don't know of anything better as a primer on how to uh, get your head around a set of concepts that really sound on the surface to be very easy, but have a depth and a complexity to them. One of the things that Yarhouse suggests is that healthy practice, especially with adolescents, is to keep from doing too much labeling too soon. And as followers of Jesus, we believe that our experiences, they don't get to define who we are. That it's our identity in Christ that helps us to interpret the experiences that we've had, and that identity in Christ can redeem all the experiences of our life for the sake of his glory. 
Here's the last of the definitions. It's gender identity. Gender identity is the act of identifying yourself as male or female. It's different from identity, which is based on, or sexual identity, which is based on attraction or orientation. This is now gender identity. And gender dysphoria is what happens when a person's biological sex isn't in line with their emotional disposition, how they see themselves as male or as female. And then, of course, we know in our culture that between the binaries of male and female, there's all sorts of other options and people moving fluidly in between or claiming neither or claiming both. Let me just pick away at this for a second with you. Is that okay? Are you feeling a need to stretch a little bit? You can do that, but... I want to pick away at it because I think there's something really important that has changed, that that has allowed these kind of conversations to surface in ways that we've not seen before. Something has shifted in culture. And what has shifted is our identity, or our understanding of how identity is really formed. It used to be that identity was something was was formed in us and, and the cues were largely external. That sense of who we really are we arrived at that by, by having a family around us that helped us understand, a community that raised us up, that helped us understand by looking at our, our own physical makeup, our bodies, and it helped us understand. What's changed now is that that essence of identity is based on who I really am that's hidden inside. Inside is the real me. It's such a common understanding now that it's hard to imagine that it was ever different. But historically, it was very different. Historically, it was something external. Currently, it's something internal. And in modern Western culture, what's happened is narcissism, which used to be kind of a vice, has become sort of a virtue. So the absolute center of all reality is me. And what's essential is how I feel on the inside. And the world has to line up with that. And in some ways, for those of you historians and biblical scholars, this is a reappearance of a very ancient philosophy, one that was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Gnostic means knowledge. And what it meant was secret knowledge. And the idea is that what's most real about the world is hidden. And that hidden knowledge is truer than what is obvious and seen. The the flesh, the material world, all of that is deceptive. That's not the real me. The Bible actually came up against Gnosticism multiple times because it wanted to be clear that, that God made the world, the physical world, and said again and again it was good and it was beautiful. That you are not a body and a mind and a heart and a spirit all sort of separate. You're all of that wrapped up together, that your body is a key to your identity. But that understanding largely has been set aside. What's most true about me is what I feel on the inside. It's a very fragile way of being. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not sure that allowing community and family to be the primary dictators of our identity is any better. But what's best is to have a gospel identity where God gets to define who you are. Does that make sense? The point is this hidden knowledge, this 
who I really am on the inside, now is the source of identity. And now the options are limitless. And this is where the whole idea of spectrum appears. You can be anywhere on the spectrum. Okay. Let's work through six passages of Scripture at great speed. You'll need your notes. You'll need your Bibles. Because we're not putting the verses up on the screen. We'll summarize them, but I want you to have your Bibles open in your laps. There are six places in Scripture that address the subject of same-sex relationships. The first, in the order in which they appear in the Bible, is in Genesis 19. There's a parallel passage in Judges 19. Genesis 19, as you're flipping to it, is the story of Sodom. You know the accounts of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, Judges 19, both give accounts that sound very similar of a perverse mob of men who are trying to rape male guests who are enjoying the safety, protection, and hospitality of local households. The story of Sodom in Genesis 19 is remarkably similar to the story of Gebeah, which you find in Judges 19. And they are both brutal, just absolutely brutal descriptions of sexual violence. In both cases, this wandering mob comes to the door of a house demanding that the men be released so they can be raped. In both cases, the homeowner offers women as alternatives. Genesis 19, the women are his own daughters. They're refused. Instead, the mob prefers to rape the men. In Judges 19, the woman is a concubine. That is accepted. She is tortured. She is raped to death. And later, she is dismembered by her own master. One scholar, a woman named Phyllis Tribble, called them rightly the texts of terror. They are among the most disturbing passages in all of the Bible. And it was on the basis of this passage and a reading of it as an indictment of homosexuality that we got the word sodomy, which has existed in the English language from about the 11th century on. When Scripture reflects back on the story of Sodom, as it does in many, many places, it never describes the evil of Sodom as same-sex attraction or activity. Isaiah 1 calls it injustice. Jeremiah 23 says it was adultery, lying, and hard-heartedness. Ezekiel, Amos, and Zephaniah say it that Sodom was destroyed for reasons of pride, mocking, oppressing the poor, and failure to protect the vulnerable. I know of very, very few actually serious scholars or interpreters of the Old Testament, traditional or progressive, who look at these two texts of terror and say these are primarily about same-sex relationships. No, these are terrifying, terrifying accounts of sexual violence. And so Sodom actually is, is a passage that even though it's familiar, is rarely ever called out anymore in the argument against homosexuality. The more relevant comparison, if you're looking to one for one, is wartime or prison rape. That's what was going on. But flip ahead to the book of Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And there in chapter 18 and chapter 20, 
you see an explicit prohibition. Leviticus 18.22 commands that a man not lie with a man as with a woman. And Leviticus 20 prescribes the death penalty for that offense. And in both cases, the act, a man lying with a man, is described as an abomination. Now, people rarely quote from the book of Leviticus, but those who do quote, if they quote from it at all, usually quote one or both of these verses. And because we don't read or quote any of the other verses, these verses just stand out. You know, for those who hold to a welcoming and affirming position, these these verses are important. We want to wrestle with them seriously. They are the only direct references to homosexuality in the entire Old Testament. So let's look at them seriously. The word there used to describe the activity of a man lying with a man. The word is tova. It means, if you were to translate it as an adjective, detestable. You might have in your translation, this is detestable to the Lord. Or if it's translated as a noun, it's abomination. That word appears frequently in the Old Testament, 117 times, in fact. It's used to refer to things that are abhorrent to the law of God. Let me give you examples. Leviticus 18 to 20, those three chapters, talk about all kinds of different sexual activities that are considered abominations. Sex with people within your own tribal group, your own extended family group, an abomination. Sex with women who are menstruating, an abomination. Food is most often connected with the concept. So Deuteronomy talks about eating pork or rabbits or shellfish or animals that had already died, roadkill, you know, eating any of those things, an abomination. Ezekiel 18 says that for violence, adultery, oppression of the poor, robbery, or charging interest on a loan, a person should be put to death, for those are an abomination before the Lord. Ezekiel 22 adds to that list the poor treatment of parents, the mistreatment of refugees and orphans and widows, profaning the Sabbath, slander or bribery, all abominations for which people should be put to death. The point that welcoming and affirming Christians would make is this, that 111 of the 117 uses of the word abomination are describing other activities. And none of those activities are met by Christians today with such open hostility. Now, I want to let you know what that argument is doing and what it's not doing. It's not overthrowing the condemnation of homosexuality. What it's saying is, if we don't deal with the other things the same way we deal with this thing, on what basis have we lifted this up? So again, it's not a refuting of what is said in the Bible. It's the suggestion that because we ignore other similar prohibitions, maybe we ought to ignore this one as well. I want to give you the tools that you need to wrestle with this in your small groups. And you're going to wrestle with that one, as I do. Let's flip to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, and 1 Timothy 1, verse 10. 
In these two sections, the Apostle Paul is offering a list of vices. He's teaching about the moral life. And he's using a very common way of preaching or teaching in his day. And that's to list out the virtues that you ought to cultivate and the vices that you ought to avoid. And in those passages, there are these two odd little words that appear. You see them on the screen. You see them in your notes. So I'm going to read the verse, and then I'm going to stress for you where those words appear. And there's a point to doing this. The point isn't to say that I didn't waste my money studying Greek all those years ago. But here it is. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Interestingly, that's not the same as saying salvation, but not be part of enjoying the way that God would have us live in the world. What does it mean to live as if God were the ruler in the world in our lives? But will not enter into the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Um, the word there is uh, pornos, pornography. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men. And the word is malakoi, who have sex with men are senakotai. Now, why, why highlight those words? Because neither of those actually are the words that we would use for man normally. If we're talking about a man, we'd talk about anthropos, anthropology, men. So these are two very specific, very strange words. Men, malakoi, who have sex with men are senakotai. And the verse goes on. Malakoi is a it's a strange little word. It means soft or weak or effeminate. And it was used often to describe male prostitutes. The word arsenicotai is it's a tough one because it's just very, very rare. It's not used. It's used only twice in the New Testament in these two, two places. And it's used very rarely in any other ancient Greek, Greek literature. But based on probably the most exhaustive study that we have of human sexuality in the New Testament and the ancient world, our best translation of this verse would be, men who have sex with men, literally homosexuals who have sex with male prostitutes. Again, this is not excusing what's going on here. It's just building a context. And again, in, in the most exhaustive study that we have of human sexuality in the Bible, William Loder, who is just a, he's teeming with, with knowledge on this, says there is a darker meaning also at work here, a reference to the ancient practice of pederastry. Pederasty is the pimping out of young boys to older men. So if you were to look at the the list of vices in First Timothy, you would have those who are sexually immoral or soft, who are abused by those who practice homosexuality, are senakotoi, by traitors or pimps who, practice, who peddle them. Uh, that's one reading. Uh, to be honest, um, the argument is one that, that hasn't completely convinced me, but I do find it an interesting one, and what I want to do is give you tools to wrestle with. 
Um, the reason it's not convincing for me completely is that not all the references to homosexuality in the New Testament are about powerful older men abusing young boys. And we're going to come to the last one in a minute. And we assume, I think, that the ancient world knew nothing of long-term, stable, loving partnerships between two people of the same sex. That's just not the case. We actually have a great open window to, if you'd like, what the gay scene was like in the Roman world. Authors like Juvenal write in great detail. And they make it clear that everything that we know today in the gay scene existed then. But even if I'm not convinced fully by the argument that this is about abusive relationships 100% of the time, if I'm honest, I lament the way sometimes that, that using poor language and questionable interpretation, we have used it in a way to assault people. The next time I hear somebody saying 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 means that gay people are going straight to hell, I'm going to wait with bated breath to make sure that they add, and shoplifters, alcoholics, liars, and greedy people will be right behind them. Because that's what it says. Let's come now to Romans 1, though. This probably is the key text, at least I think it's the key text. It's the one most often cited in the discussion, and rightly so. Paul is making here an argument about why everyone needs salvation. And in an effort to illustrate the idolatry and the sinfulness of of the Gentile world, he lists a whole bunch of practices, including same-sex activity. Let's read it together. Romans 1, 26 and 27, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, and even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men, and they received in themselves the due penalty for their error. That text that text is probably foundational in the not affirming part of the welcoming, welcoming but not affirming position. And taken at face value, the, the meaning seems hard to avoid. For welcoming and affirming people, this is probably the most difficult text to deal with. They raise a few questions, and so I'll, I'll raise them with you. Here's one question they might ask. When you use that language of exchanging or, or giving up natural for unnatural relationships, uh, maybe what Paul is suggesting is that these are people who had a choice, that, that they were heterosexual in nature and yet choose in some ridiculous orgiastic way. And that's not uncommon in Rome. They're famous for their orgiastic celebrations. They choose to abandon that. Uh, in pursuit of some same-sex dalliance. So that's one question. Uh, we know that, that same-sex behavior in Rome very often, though not always, looked like, and I'll use the word again, pederasty, prostitution, this master-slave relationship, and that that here is what's being condemned. But again, I, I'm just not certain, and I'm not sure that's what it says. Particularly, 
when it talks about women exchanging or having relationships with other women. We know of no indication anywhere in the ancient world where older women were abusing younger girls. So, The third question that they would raise or point they'd make is that the Bible had no concept of sexual orientation. And so it can only speak about sexual acts, many of which were characterized by violence and depravity. That the mention here of homosexuality in Romans 1 is a reference to acts, behaviors, often violent, often debaucherous, not to stable, loving, long-term committed partnerships. So that's the, the questions that they would raise. Again, I, I haven't found any of them convincing on their own. I think the, the verse is one to be wrestled with deeply, and there's something there that we cannot quickly or easily set aside. But if we can, what I'd like to do is shift our discussion for, for just a few minutes as we move towards wrapping things up and give you a whole different footing for the debate or for the discussion. One of the saddest things for me as the church has tried to work this out is how both sides have concentrated primarily on the biblical negatives on the prohibitions against homosexual practice. I'd love to give some attention to the high, yes, glorious view of sexuality that's upheld in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, you see pairs of things, different but complementary, that are made to work together. You have heaven and earth. You have land and sea. You have God and humanity. And it seems to be part of God's creative brilliance that these diverse things are brought together. And out of those unions, more life and more beauty comes. As one of my favorite writers, N.T. Wright, says, the creation and unifying of male and female at the end of the Genesis story is the climax of it all. Male and female have this unique, non-interchangeable set of glories. They They each have things that that exist in them that don't exist in the other. Sex created by God becomes a way to mingle all of those strengths and glories within the lifelong covenant of marriage. In that sense, marriage is the most intense, even though it's not the only, but the most intense place where the union of a man and woman take place in human life. They're male and female. They get to respect and learn from and work together with each other. Genesis 1 and 2 speak about the binary nature of gender and about sex within the monogamous heterosexual marriage. It says God created humans in his own image and in the image of God he created the male and female. That's the way he made them. And though there are corruptions of the design, adultery and polygamy and and sexual violence, those are all condemned in Scripture as aberrations. And attention is always drawn back to the original design. Even Jesus does this. He talks about about the, the, the maleness and the femaleness of what God is doing, and he draws attention back to creation. Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6, a foundational text. Jesus says, have you not heard that from the very beginning the Creator made them male and female, and for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become 
one flesh. They're no longer two, but now they're one. We see that it's declared in Genesis. It's affirmed by Jesus. And it does not change. Throughout the whole of Scripture, it does not change. And to those who who maybe disagree, disagree, and I know that there are people who do, I just want to say, you know, I've, I've read the Bible a few times, but I'm really open. I'm open to this. I'm, I'm open to other interpretations. But if I'm honest, I can't find a single place in Scripture that affirms same-sex behavior. And I've looked for it, but I can't find it. Uh, there are people who are working hard to say that what's really going on in the book of Genesis is the beginning of options. That God made male and female, but that wasn't the end of it. There were more options. That he made them to be united together in, in heterosexual monogamous relationships in marriage. But that was not all the options. It's just the beginning of them. But, I mean, to be honest, I think they've got an awful long way to go because we don't see the options being illustrated anywhere in the multi-thousand-year history that's recorded in the Bible. Let's, uh, let's think about how we can wrap up the conversation. And again, I'm thinking about how we can make this redemptive. How can we think about framing a response? And really, we're talking about three responses. There's, there's a theological response or an ethical response. Is it right or is it wrong? That's one of the things that we're wrestling with. There's also a civic response. What do we believe about the rights and dignity of other human beings? How do we relate to the government and to society? There was a time when it was illegal for just to be gay. You'd be thrown in jail for that. There are places in the world where that would still happen. I think I would stand against that. I think I, for one, would want to say that you should not be jailed because of an orientation. So there's a, there's a civic response but it might be different than the theological response. And then, most importantly to me, there's a pastoral response. How do we care for people? How do we care for people in our families, and in our churches, and in our communities? So I'm going to run you through, and this is on the very back page, and you don't have to write it down, it's there for you. I'm going to run you through some ideas about how we can respond pastorally. If we're hoping to have a redemptive voice in this conversation from a, a traditional perspective, from a welcoming but maybe not affirming perspective, here's the first idea. Remember that we don't just want to speak the truth. We want people to hear the truth. And if we want to speak the truth in a way that they can hear especially when we're talking about issues of sin, things that we recognize as sin that our culture does not, I think we need to be very careful about how we do it. Galatians 6, 1-2, really catches us in this conversation. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore that person gently. Watch yourselves, or you might also be tempted, and carry each other's burdens. That phrase spiritual, I think, is kind of important there. And in our culture, we see spiritual, and sometimes we think holier than thou. I, I don't think that's the idea. Think more in terms of fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, 
I think what Paul's getting at here is that before we go and confront anyone or enter into these kind of conversations, we should first come humbly back to the Father and ask him, are these the character traits that are going to fill us and define us as we have these hard conversations? We should be speaking in a spirit of gentleness. People should hear us express our position in such a way that that they kind of get that we are for them, we're, we're not against them. Because I think people are convinced that we hate them. And because we speak for God, that God must hate them too. Here's a second thought. Help people to interpret God's design in a way that could actually be redemptive, not just condemning. We need to do, I think, a better job in presenting the whole scriptural narrative, creation, which is good and beautiful, fall, which includes all of us who've fallen in different areas of our life, redemption, restoration, we're all created in God's image, we're all fallen, we're all disoriented, but we can all be redeemed and we can all be restored. I think we need to acknowledge that that those of us who don't struggle with same-sex attraction, we're in, I don't like the word privilege, but it's the right word here, We're in kind of a privileged position, even still in the world. We can't fully understand what that journey is like for somebody who is wrestling with gender dysphoria or with same-sex attraction. And we need to understand that the level of denying yourself involved in saying, take up your cross and follow Jesus and abandon your desire to act out on that orientation, that that's happening at a whole different level than somebody might say, listen, I don't have quite enough money to buy that bike, and so I'm going to hold off on it for a little while. In fact, if the only time we talk about really denying ourselves and taking up our cross is in the context of sexuality, then we should appropriately be labeled as having discriminatory practice. Here's a third thought. Quit making an idol out of sex and marriage. There's a reason we don't teach on this all the time. In fact, this might be the first time in a long time that we've spoken about it here. Uh, I should probably explain that I'm not against sex or marriage. Both great ideas. I enjoy them both tremendously. But, But sometimes I think in order to combat the depravity in our culture, we've raised sex up to the same level that they have. We've hypersexualized the church. We've made this the defining issue of the Christian life, and we've made it the test of Christian orthodoxy. And again, to be clear, based on the balance of his teaching, Jesus was far more concerned with people's spiritual orientation than he was with their sexual orientation. Here's a fourth thought. Embrace an identity in Christ. Embrace it fully. That means our primary identity is in Christ. And that identity helps me to understand all the other experiences in my life. Our culture says if you have same-sex attraction, you're gay, and you have a responsibility to live that out. That's just who you are. I don't think we want to give any one part of our identity whether it's same-sex or heterosexual, any one part of our identity, that much weight in defining who we are. Who we are, first and foremost, is in Christ. And that changes all these other things that are in my world and how I respond. And it acknowledges that, that all of us are we're just marred by sin. But Christ restores His image in us. 
And there is not a single experience in our lives that he cannot redeem for his glory. One last thought, and then I'm, I'm so glad we get to spend a few minutes together at the table. We need to be communities defined by grace. We need to just tiptoe a little bit on that razor's edge, realizing that sometimes we'll fall on the side of law and sometimes we'll fall on the side of grace. But if we're going to err, let's err on the side of grace. But even then, it'll be grace and truth with the conviction that God's way isn't just right, it's good. It's really good. And if it's good, it should be good for all people. I think that's enough for today. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for your faithfulness in trying to engage with an issue that is of the utmost importance for us, for you, and for the church. You join me as we pray. Our Father, be with us as we wrestle through your word. We want to do so faithfully. Be with us also, though, as we as we make our way through this world and through the network of relationships, of friendships and family that make up our lives. We want to be faithful there. We want to be people of grace. We want to know truth, but we don't want to be always so right that in our rightness, that we cannot hear people's pain. Give us compassionate hearts. Give us tender and gentle spirits so that like Jesus, we can be accepting of people so that all people can find a way back to you, a way to be transformed in the image of Jesus Christ, knowing that That identity rules over all others in our lives. We thank you for him. We thank you for example, his example, and we thank you for his words. We thank you for his radical redefinition of love and sacrifice. And we celebrate it now as we come to your table. In Christ's name we pray together and God's people said, Amen.